0: The National Archives podcast series, The Life and Work of Macdonald Gill, Mapmaker, Letterer and Graphic Artist, presented by Caroline Walker. I'd like to start by just clarifying who Macdonald Gill actually was. When the name Gill is mentioned, most people instantly jump to the conclusion One's talking about Eric Gill, who was a very well-known sculptor and typographer, and he was also the older brother of Macdonald Gill, who was also an artist. The other person that people do get McDonald Gill mixed up with is a cartoon maker called Donald McGill. So as you can see, a very similar name, but frequently people ask me about um, McDonald Gill. Oh yes, he was the one that did those saucy postcards. I'm afraid um, you'll be disappointed if you've come to hear about Donald McGill. Now, McDonald Gill, um, he wasn't as I say, Eric Gill, but he was an artist and he produced a very versatile range of work. The London Who's Who in 1920 described Macdonald Gill as an architect, a mural painter, a sign writer, and a cartographer. But he was also, as well as that, he was also a calligrapher, an illustrator of books. He designed furniture, he designed inscriptions and memorials and lettering. So he was prolific and he was very versatile and he could also design in just about any scale you wanted, from a tiny little postage stamp to this massive 200-foot mural which decorated the UK Pavilion at the Glasgow Exhibition of 1938. His clients, too, were extremely varied. He worked for many eminent architects of his day, from Edwin Lutyens to Charles Holden, And he also worked for many institutions and companies of the time, some of which still exist, such as the BBC, Cable & Wireless, Selfridges, Rolls-Royce, and of course the London Underground, for whom he did a lot of work. But although he was very well known in his lifetime, sadly after his death, his name and work was forgotten by most I think mainly this was because his work was ephemeral, it was commercial, it was publicity work which had to be very up-to-date for its time, but after that time, it wasn't relevant anymore. And also a lot of his work, of course, was posters and on paper, which just disappeared into thin air, or was just thrown away. One or two things you may recognise work that has endured was his his GPO logo, which survived until fairly recently and his design for the alphabet of the headstone for the standard military gravestone. And he also did the emblems. So that's something which has endured even to today, that alphabet is still used. Now, of course, in the 21st century, we look back on his work, and you can actually see that his work is important not just artistically, but also historically. He records a a vanished era, if you like, with his work. For example, we've got his Highways of Empire map, which was published in 1926, which gives us an image of Britain, as you can see, right at the heart of the world, still ruling the waves. Or we can go to his London season map, and we can see how the upper echelons of society liked living, their presentation at court, the debutantes. um, We've even got Wimbledon here at the bottom. (laughs) And the Epsom Derby, of course. Then we've also got maps which show technology, maps which here show cutting-edge technology. With, this is the radio telephone services, the mobile telephone of its day. So we can see that his work also reflects a very interesting historical period as well. So what I've got to try and do in, in now about 40 minutes is to give you a brief overview now of his life and his work, which is a very short time, but I'll do my best. So we're going to start with... This little house in Brighton, that's where he was born, in 1884. A modest little house. He was the fourth child and second son of Arthur and Rose Gill. Now, he was a a Methodist minister of a rather strange splinter group called the Countess of Huntingdon's Connection. He was rather a, a mild man, and he had a sentimental streak. Enormous dislike of conflict both of which, both traits, Max inherited from him. And we can see Rose on the right, and I think, you know, she, you can see there, she's a feisty lady. She was a strong, independent, fairly independent-minded lady. She'd been a, a professional singer before she married the minister. Uh, one could say perhaps a bit of the bishop and the actress, perhaps. Um, he, he grabbed her from the stage, as he used to like saying, apparently. He was uh, from missionary stock, so he was, he was very proud of his family having been in the South Seas. In fact, he, in fact, he was born out in the South Seas. Uh, from Rose, Max inherited his wit and his very dry sense of humour and his love of practical jokes. She was the centre of the family, and when I say a family, it was a big one. It was a typical Victorian family. There were 13 children in all, 11 of whom survived to adulthood. I think she ruled the house, I won't say with a rod of iron, but she certainly knew how to manage things, and all the children had their special tasks to do, laying the table or cleaning the shoes. You know, she, she didn't let them, you know, she didn't let them shirk their duties. OK, there's the 11 surviving children, sort of in various stages of, uh, from childhood to adulthood. We've got Max is up there on the... just one end from at the top, on the back, and Eric is in the middle with his beard mother and father and uh, just to on the far left standing that's my grandfather yes the house that they lived in in Brighton latterly was uh, right overlooking the main railway line into Brighton and you can imagine six boys became avid train spotters and these were the trains and locomotives and carriages were the first things that they all started to draw these were some of Max's very earliest drawings at the age of about 12 I mean, the, the, there are pages and pages of these. And he and Eric, in particular, drew them constantly. They also knew every detail of all the locomotives. Soon after this was done, actually, Max and his family moved to Chichester. He and his brother went to the pre school, and Max also attended art classes at the local art college and also carving. And his boyhood diaries, of which a couple still survive, show that he made the most of every moment in his life. He, he obviously loved life and he loved doing things. He was a passionate collector of just about anything. He loved sketching, and here we can see one of his early sketches. And he was also starting to draw maps. And they were obviously, there, sadly there were no surviving examples, but they must have been pretty good because the other kids at school wanted them. And they would barter precious cricket balls birds' eggs and other things, and even pay money, their pocket money, to have, to own one of Max's maps. So I I wish we could see one of them, but there we go. Maybe one of them will turn up one day. He also used to put on little entertainments for the family. In particular, he loved conjuring and doing magic tricks. The other passions in his life were football and cricket. And in this map, much later, we can see that he's harking back nostalgically to his his family life, and we've got Max bowling. We've got his three children here doing some fielding. We've got Eric standing there saying, "'Hit it, Mother!' <laughs> and we've got Father, slightly hidden, looking at the match there, and various other members of the family. So he used to very often include these family details on, his, on the maps that he did for the London Underground. And of course, he was always the, he's also the family joker and used to perpetrate with his brother Romney as his partner in crime, lots of little pranks and practical jokes. And there's one particular one which uh, his, w- was recorded. He and Romney attached threads to the bottom of Eric's bedclothes. They ran the threads out of the room, and then when Eric went to bed, of course Eric hadn't seen these, they sat outside the closed door and pulled on the threads so that all Eric's blankets slipped off. Eric's reaction is not recorded, but uh, I can imagine that probably he wasn't best pleased. Two years later, uh, after this, Max, aged about 14, moved to Bognor, and he was articled to a local architect. Now, by this time, Eric was living in London, also articled to uh, an architect. And the boys weren't particularly close. Eric and Max uh, often had um, conflicts. Eric admitted that uh, he was argumentative and rebellious. In fact, in his autobiography, he even wrote, quote, I was hateful at home and hated being there. Uh, how you can imagine, in a small house, that must have been pretty difficult. And Eric wasn't very complimentary about Max either. He described Max as so virtuous by nature and so stupid and muddle-headed, and he has always been impossible to argue with. In contrast, of course, Romney, which is, this is Romney, and the other siblings, thought that Max was, quote, an extremely attractive person, always the joker of the family as well as the most thoughtful and kind. So we've got two very different uh, views of, of Max there. Now, in 1903, Max moved to London as well and lived at Lincoln's Inn. In fact, Romney is sitting on the roof of the Lincoln's Inn chambers there. Oh, that's another picture of the family. Eric and Max at the back. I think you can see the two different characters there. Max on the right, far right, definitely a little bit more sensitive and quiet than Eric, who was the more hot-headed one. So this is the Lincoln's Inn building where Max lived. He had the top floor, and initially he shared with Eric. Eric in particular at this time was proving difficult to live with for Max because Eric had become an agnostic. Max was very strongly religious, very strongly Anglo-Catholic, and... Eric used to like picking arguments and fights about and and attacking uh, Max's Anglo-Catholic views. And Max wouldn't argue back. He would be quiet. And that's one of the reasons that Eric said what he said about... It's impossible to argue with. And it's because Max wouldn't argue. He refused to argue uh, with his brother about about his religion. Now, for the first five years in London, Max worked as an assistant architect uh, to Sir Charles Nicholson and Hubert Corlett, who specialised in building churches. Here he is at that time. This is about 1905, again at Lincoln's Inn. In his spare time, he took classes at the Central School of Arts and Crafts, and one of his teachers there was the celebrated calligrapher Edward Johnston. So when we see Max's lettering later on, you can see where his, his inspiration and also who his teacher was. I mean, wonderful lettering. Max also entered architectural competitions, several of which he won, and he had work displayed in a lot of exhibitions, and in 1907 he had his first work accepted for the Royal Academy Exhibition, which this is a design for a chancel interior for the paintwork. Now in 1903, Eric had abandoned his architecture to concentrate on letter cutting, and as he got busier, he used to give some of his work, his drawing work or painting work, to Max and when in 1908 Max went freelance the two brothers did a lot of work uh, collaborating with each other and this is an early work they did together it's a very large memorial at Cheltenham Ladies College for which Max did all the designing and the painting and some of the plaster moulding making and Eric did all the letter cutting and he did it, of course, very beautifully too. He was a superb letter carver. As you can see, this is just part of it. That's, that's what it looks like today. Slightly faded colouring, but still very beautiful. Ma- uh, Eric, by this time, had found Catholicism. So their relationship actually had become more harmonious, thankfully. But Max's network of friends and acquaintances... Uh, was very wide and varied, and he belonged to numerous societies. I mean, you name it, he belonged to it. He was a networker. But the most influential was the Art Workers' Guild, which still exists today, which is the major meeting place for all the architects and craftsmen who had the same philosophy of the arts and crafts movement. And it was probably uh, at, the arts, uh, at the Art Workers' Guild that Max met Edwin Lutyens, who was already very well known by this time for his lovely arts and crafts houses. And at this time in 1908, Lutyens was just completing a palatial mansion called Nashdom, which is in Buckinghamshire, not far from Cliveden. And he asked Max to design his first professional map. And it was this one. It's a wind dial map and it's still there today at the house and uh, if you contact the manager at Nashdom, you can go and see it. The house is now all apartments, uh, but this area is, is, a, is a sort of more public area, and if you contact the manager, you can actually go and see it. A wind dial. Well, this is it close up, and it, I'm, sadly, this one has lost its indicator, which you can see there's a little hole in the middle. A wind dial was connected, the indicator was connected with lots of cogs and rods made of metal and gun metal up to the roof to a weather vane. The weather vane would turn and move the indicator to show the wind direction. Lutchen's was Dutch in, in origin, his family was Dutch, and I think he must have had the idea from the Dutch merchants' houses. When Dutch merchants were expecting a ship in, they could look at these wind dials that they'd had done in their, made in their houses and know if it was a fair wind or foul, and if their ship might come in, or if their ship could go out that day. So they had a very practical purpose in Holland. I'm not sure that they did in Nashtam in Buckinghamshire, but there we go. This is another one. This is at Kelling Hall, an arts and crafts house in Norfolk. And this one was actually used for a very practical purpose. Uh, The owner used to use it to see if the wind was right for his pheasant shoot. Um, The boys, however, his sons actually preferred to use it as a dartboard. I mean, we can just see one or two of the the holes there, but there are a number of little holes. I think it was discouraged eventually by um, a sound thrashing, so I understand. A couple of weeks ago, my husband and I went up to Lindisfarne, and uh, this is the fabulous wind dial map at Lindisfarne Castle. Also, Lutyens was refurbishing the castle at this time in 1911. So Max was painting maps and at about this time, 1912, he started to do graphic work for printers. Printing at that time was re- being revolutionised by new developments in colour printing and advertisers and companies were latching on to this. So be- colour printing was the latest thing in all their public- in publicity and marketing which was, which was a new thing in those days really. So here we see two examples of Max's graphic work. This is a piece of original artwork, and on the right we've got the actual, an actual printed copy of a similar cover. So you can see his style. It's very bold, very simple, and very colourful, which was very effective for a, a marketing tool, for publicity. Most of his work for printing was, was done for a, a chap called Gerard Menel, who was owner of the Westminster Press. He knew someone called Frank Pick. I don't know if anyone has heard of Frank Pick. Frank Pick was the publicity officer for London Underground, or at that time called the London Electric Railways. And he was revamping the image and infrastructure of London Underground. And one of his first things was to create a poster campaign. And one of the early posters was a commission for a map But not a map to find directions, not a map that's going to help you get from A to B, but a map to entertain passengers in the stations. And this is the map that Max created, and it became known as the Wonderground map of London Town. It was actually so popular with people that Frank Pick decided that that it should be put on sale to the public. It sold for six shillings. Now, in 1914, six shillings was a lot of money... But it sold sold like hotcakes, apparently. Max received £35 for the design, but he didn't get any royalties, which was a shame, because Gerard Menel did actually use the map a number of times afterwards, including for the Wembley exhibition, um, and must have made a mint, I have to say. But it was a landmark poster for a number of reasons. It was the first time that a map had been reused really for publicity purposes. It It received enormous newspaper acclaim. The Daily Sketch, one, one of many newspaper cuttings in Max's collection, declared that it makes the hoardings more popular than the trains. People watch so long, they lose their trains and yet go on smiling. And it also spawned a lot of imitations around the world. And within, within a few years, we've got underground maps of Melbourne, of Manhattan, of Boston, Mexico and, and many others. And even in the 50s and up to today, there are still people who go back to Max's Wonderground map and produce a pastiche of some kind. The appeal of this map is evident when you look at the detail. It's not just about colour, it's about the way that Max has depicted London. It's a mixture of sort of ancient and modern, with sort of chevron borders and wonderful lettering, but it's also got lots of quirky cartoon characters, puns and little jokes and here we've got the serpentine, who apparently is not really such a worm. And uh, we've also got Tyburn up there um, with a vulture overhead saying, what food for the little ones, very gleefully. And then we've got up-to-date, cutting-edge things coming in, like the plane up there on the left. Now, today we think, oh, gosh, isn't that, isn't that fun? Very nice little historical detail. M- while match was actually... Creating this map, the first loop-the-loop in a Blériot biplane actually took place. So that's, that's not old hat to Max and the public of that time. That was absolutely up to the minute. And we've got lots of puns here. We've got the Earl's Court. And he also included, as we saw before in the country bus services map, he, can, he puts in lots of little family detail. And here we've got, down at the bottom here, a little girl there called Priscilla and this map was produced in 1914 and this is his three-year-old goddaughter Priscilla who we'll come to later. The map was so popular as I said Frank Pick said right we've got to do another one and this is the follow-up to it it's called Land. and this was produced in time of war when Londoners were starting to shun the West End and the, the theatres were getting a bit worried so Pick tried to Uh, encourage people to come into the West End with this map. Again, we've got detail showing events of the day. As Max was creating this map, the first Zeppelin attacks started in London. We've also got little family detail here. We've got underneath that Zeppelin, we've got his brother, Eric, sitting by warming his hands on a fire, saying, such a cold night too. And then Max has written here in the fire, a real bomb. (laughs) Obviously he wanted to blow up his brother. And also in the year that this was published, Max had got together with Muriel. And that's Muriel and Max up there in the top right-hand corner with their names on the, their costumes. My favourite map, though, I, I love this map, and I love the Wonderground map, but actually my favourite map is this map, of which there's just a tiny detail. It's Peter Pan of Kensington Gardens, which is just enchanting. And it's been on display at the poster map exhibition at the London uh, Transport Museum recently. Now, just after uh, the Wonderground map was published, Max moved to Dorset. He was working on a farm project, a model farm project, and the building of a model village in Bryant's Puddle. These are his innovative silos, which were based on designs of northern, northern French sort of towers and things. And he also designed a lot of cottages, which look, which look very traditional, very old, but they were actually made of concrete blocks. And this was for Ernest Debenham of Debenhams, Debenham and Freebody, who bought the estate here. Now, let's come back to Max's love life. Well, as I said, he, mar- he married the lady Muriel, who you can see in the top right, but um, it took him a long time. He met Muriel in about 1903, but he didn't marry her till 1915. And there were, I think, two broken engagements during that time. And he had a number of other girlfriends uh, or sweethearts, Um, but he finally got together with Muriel after his girlfriend Esther had broken up with him. And about two days after Esther broke it off, guess who he writes to? He writes to his old flame Muriel. And within a very short time they were engaged and the following August 1915 they got married. OK, there's Muriel and Max. That's a little cartoon, a series of cartoons that Max drew about depicting his marriage and honeymoon. And there they are, there they are off on their journey on their honeymoon with a, a slipper on the back with a tin tack apparently and all the people who were at the, the little wedding. And this is where they lived in Dorset for the five years they were there, in Turner's Puddle. By this time, of course, 1915, war was taking, war was happening over in northern France, and several of Max's brothers um, were fighting in the, in the, on the fronts, in, first in, up in Belgium, in Ypres, and then down on the Somme. Eric and Max didn't get to fight in the war. Max, of course, was working on a farm, on a farm project. He tried to join up um, in particular as a cartographer but I don't know for whatever reason he he was refused or I don't know what happened. So he continued working in Dorset. But his contribution to the war effort if you like was the creation of the alphabet for the headstone which was used um, for all the graves of the military dead. So he worked for the Imperial War Graves Commission until his death actually in 1947. So he designed this alphabet and also slightly altered for 1939. The headstone of his brother. This shows one of the emblems that um, was designed. He, he had to draw hundreds of these emblems. Every single regiment for every country and every, every single one of which... I mean, I think there are at least 250. He drew out as, ca- as cartoons in preparation for the letter cutting. So his Brother, this, this brother Kenneth was the only one of the Gill brothers to die in the war and he was killed in an air crash about a few days before the armistice. After the war, Max moved back to Chichester with his family and built up a very successful practice in architecture and artwork and graphic arts and so on. And He designed a steady stream of memorials in particular. A number of Oxford colleges have his roles as honour. This one is at Christchurch Cathedral in Oxford. He built up a very successful practice in architecture and worked also for the London Underground. This is a system map that he designed pre-Beck. He designed more maps. This was one showing the record-breaking flight of Ross Smith to Australia. Again, a very tragic, Ross Smith died about a year after this in in a test flight. He designed, as I said, a number of cottages and houses. This one Lovely house in Sussex, an Arts and Crafts style house for Harold Heel, who owned and ran Staples, Staples Corner. And talking of Staples Corner, which I'm sure you all know, that landmark on the North Circular. Well, the th- the thing that put the Staples Corner on the map was when it was built at um, just at the time of the Wembley Exhibition. And Max had designed all the hoardings and the, the um, what's it called, the fascia boards, enormous, massive fascia boards in yellow and red. And it was those, those fascia boards and Staples' name that were on the official directions for the Wembley Exhibition. And that's why Staples Corner became such a landmark. So Max played a part in that too. He was so... Max was, by this time, very snowed under with work, and he took on an assistant, a a permanent assistant, and that was Billy Kingswell, who was a very skilled sign writer, and he stayed with Max for most of the rest of Max's career. He was a lovely man who had a great sense of humour, and I think he and Max sort of sparred off each other. Through Max's connections with Frank Pick, which were really very important in his career, um, Max was employed by the Empire Marketing Board in 1926. And this was the poster that spearheaded their Buy British and Colonial Goods campaign on New Year's Day in 1927. Newspaper reports tell us that, quote, "...it immediately proved so attractive as to cause congestion in the highways of London. In the Charing Cross Road, an indignant patriot who was pointing out the extent of the empire with his umbrella..." was moved on by the police, along with his audience. I mean, it really did create a stir. And schools schools could apply for free copies, and the map found its way into classrooms up and down the country in a smaller form than this one, I hasten to add, which was 20 foot by 10 foot. And um, interestingly... This building here at Kew houses all the maps that, that Max did for the Empire Marketing Board. It's, in fact, where I first saw them um, in, in the map room here. And they even have this 16-page map of the original hoardings map of 20, 20 by 10 foot. Now, I can't go on without mentioning Max's, Max's mural painting. He was very well known for mural painting as well, particularly in churches. Um, and I'm just going to tell you a little bit about one. And this is at St Andrew's Church in Roca. And this is, depicts the seven days of the creation very colourfully. And he did this in 1927. And I would like to add that uh, for us ladies here, two of the people who helped paint this were ladies. They were up high on the scaffolding working with Max and, and two other chaps. This is a detail a little bit more closely up. Uh, unfortunately, damp... Is causing some of this to disappear. Adam, I'm afraid, has virtually disappeared now. A rather masculine looking or Amazonian Eve still exists. By this time, Max had three children. These are John, Mary, and Anne. And Mary is still alive, actually. She's 95 now, living in West Wittering down in Sussex. Now we come to 1933. The depression started to bite. Max still had a lot of work, but income was much smaller. And he had very high outgoings. His children were all at boarding school. Um, He had rent to pay on his studio in the temple. He'd just built a house in West Wittering. He belonged to all these societies for which he paid subscriptions for. So he was in a bit of financial trouble. He always had an overdraft for some reason. He wasn't very good at handling money, I think. And he wasn't getting on very well with Muriel. Their relationship had never quite been as they had hoped, Um, and I think Max, too, was just getting to a midlife crisis. At a London talk in 1933, he met, having not seen her for many years, he met his goddaughter Priscilla Johnston again. Now, Priscilla was the daughter of his old friend Edward Johnston, who you met earlier at Lincoln's Inn in, in those days. As you can see, Priscilla, Max was at this time 48, and she was... Just, yeah, 22, I think she was here. She was a novelist, a budding novelist. She'd already had two books published. Um, And she was basically everything that Muriel wasn't at that time. It was very sad for Muriel. You know, she was in her late 40s. What could she offer Max when faced with the young, attractive Priscilla? Priscilla was also artistic, she'd been to Brighton College of Art, she'd grown up in the ditchling community of arts and crafts, the arts and crafts world. She had an intellect, she loved discussion, she took an enormous interest in Max's work, and he just fell for her, he fell passionately in love with her. She was a little bit uh, not quite so in love with him initially, um, but she was fascinated by him, fascinated by his work. She soon became his secretary and his assistant, and she started doing tracings, blocking in work, and she was even allowed the following year to help paint waves on this wonderful map in the Scott Polar Institute in Cambridge. I have to say, there, was, there were also some tears. Um, it wasn't quite so easy. There were tears, because Max was quite critical. When it came to his artwork, Max had, it had to be perfect. And um, at least on one occasion, Priscilla stormed off the scaffolding in tears because her maps, her her waves had been proclaimed not quite good enough. (laughs) Um, This is also, interestingly, it's the only work of this kind that Max has actually given her credit. We've got a little PJ there up on that map. So if you ever visit the Polar Institute, have a look in the maps. They're up in the domes, the Arctic and the Antarctic. See if you can spot Priscilla's initials. She also helped on this map, which was for the Queen Mary. I don't know if anyone's been to Long Beach, or perhaps if anyone ever went on the Queen Mary in the days that it sailed. Uh, this map uh, presides over the first-class dining room, and that's what it looks like. An important client at this time was also it was the GPO, and we saw briefly the logo before. And Max also designed a series of maps for them, including one we saw earlier, and this one, the mail steamship ship routes, which I rather like, which shows the journey of a letter from the postbox onto the ship and across the Atlantic. There were also posters for the tea industry. Uh, this is one that used to be in our kitchen at home. Uh, there were t- and there were other other maps, including glass maps for Imperial Airways. Now, in 1938, towards the end of the decade, Max's children had left home. Max told Muriel that he was leaving her. She was devastated because she thought, really, although they didn't get on very well, she, of course, thought that they'd be together for always. You know, she thought that he would stay with her no matter what. But um, nothing would persuade him to change his mind, despite all sorts of letters from his siblings, his, several of whom were absolutely shocked and wrote him some very rather poisonous letters. Eric, in particular, wrote... Your action is both astonishing and inexplicable. In fact, on the face of it, it seems both mad and bad and unChristian. Well, I have to say, this was rather hypocritical. If, if anybody knows anything about Eric Gill, it's his behavior and his, in particular, his sexual behavior. Not only did he have incest, incest with uh, his several of his sisters and his daughters but he was, at the time he wrote that letter, having a torrid affair with his secretary right under his wife's nose. But interest, interestingly, Max's daughters, although they were very upset for their mother, they, they actually approved of Max's decision because they could see that the marriage had not been a happy one. They could see that, that Max was incredibly happy with Priscilla, and they liked Priscilla. They, were, they became great friends with her. By contrast, Max's son, John, was very much his mother's son and there was a major rift and, and father and son they, they eventually came to an understanding but th- that they didn't speak for, for, for several years. Max and Priscilla set up home in Chelsea and bought, bought a ramsackle cottage in Sussex. This was the cottage Priscilla bought it with a little inheritance and they lived here particularly during the Second World War. Life wasn't always easy with Priscilla I have to say it was, it was a very loving relationship, but Priscilla was a lot younger and she used to get, have little flirtations, uh, which Max had to put up with. They couldn't marry because, Pris- uh, because Muriel wouldn't give him a divorce. Um, one of her little flirtations was with Henry Williamson, the author of Tarka the Otter. Max converted the little wash house here into a studio. Here he created this enormous map, which was another of these massive ones, 20 by 10, Ten Foot Tea Revives the World, which tells us all sorts of little funny bits of information. It's, it's, it's one of those maps you can just find something new every time you look at it. So it tells us the British Isles are the world's greatest tea drinkers, which, of course, is absolutely true. It also tells us that 280,000 cups of tea are drunk on a round trip on the Queen Mary. I mean, you did want to know that, didn't you? <laughs> it also, of course, was published in Time of War and it tells us in several areas in different ways that tea will calm you. Now the war years again were another lean time for Max with little income but they they got through the war in particular they created a small holding in the meadow at the cottage you, you can see that Max is definitely looking his age here with a very young Priscilla and during the time that, during the war, he also created the Atlantic Charter Map, which was the sort of predecessor, if you like, of the, of the United Nations map that was later published. It was the, begin, it was the sort of um, moment of the beginning of the special relationship between Britain and the United States. Of course, the changing of the power of Britain when it started to become, of course, the power of the United States as a world power. Max actually went to... It came to London to get Winston Churchill's signature, which is, we can see, printed on the map there. This is the last poster that Max designed for, great, for the cable and wireless company, and you can see a copy of this at, down at Porth if you've ever been to the, the Telegraph Museum there. And in the same year that this was published, finally Muriel allowed a divorce. And in the following year, in May 1946, Max and Priscilla got married. And they worked together on this little design and then the the actual map for the Queen Elizabeth liner for Cunard. And this was finished at the end of August in 1946. There it is on the ship. Unfortunately, as you probably know, the ship caught fire in Hong Kong harbour in the 1970s, having just been refurbished as a university, a floating university. And presumably this was destroyed along with everything else. When it, um, after the, as it was on fire, it sank in in the harbour. So this is, this no longer exists. But it was Max's last major work. This is his last painted map and his last major work. A few days after this map was published, um, this map was sent off to Southampton to go on board ship. Max was taken into hospital. He wasn't very well. And lung cancer was diagnosed. I mean, in that very first picture, you could see a cigarette in his hand, and he, he was almost never without one. He was a constant smoker, as was Priscilla. His brother, Eric, had died some years earlier also of lung cancer, another smoker, but also with stone dust, of course. Um, he was given x-ray treatment, but uh, he sadly died a short time later, on the 14th of January, in Chelsea. I mean, you can imagine Priscilla still a young woman. She was devastated, but she went on to build a new life for herself. She finally remarried. Um, We do owe her an enormous debt. After Max's death, she cleared out the Chelsea studio and very carefully wrapped up lots of rolls of posters. She selected lots of the original artwork. She selected a number of important books of ledgers, workbooks and so on, diaries. Letters and kept them. She kept and stored those things away very carefully in cupboards, up in the eaves, on top of wardrobes, in all sorts of hidden places. And when her, hus- when her nephew inherited the cottage in 18- 1984, I beg your pardon, he slowly discovered all these things in the cottage. And those discoveries um, led me to go and meet him and find the cottage. And uh, in 2011, a lot of that material was displayed on, at an exhibition in Brighton. A large part of that exhibition is going to be coming to Ealing in the autumn of this year. So keep your eyes open on the events at Pitshanger Manor Gallery in Ealing, where you will be able to see a lot of the things that were at that major, major exhibition in Brighton. So that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to just leave you with a picture of Max. And that's Max, one hair caught in the temple. That was his address of his studio. And there he is catching the hair. (laughs) Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 27th of June 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.